I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a Tap Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season two, we're focusing on Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars in a weekly conversation. We're so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hello. Hi, guys. Welcome to episode 50-something. I don't know. Something. Somewhere in the 50s. 56. (laughs) 56 of a tap on the wrist. I'm Vanessa. I'm Laura. And uh, it's an exciting week. This is a good <laughs> I mean, both, both the podcast episode and in life. <laughs> yes. Uh, so tomorrow is Inauguration Day, which yes. I've been waiting four fucking years for. I know. I'm so happy and so excited. I'm a little bit nervous just because of, you know all the violence that's insurrection been and yeah but um but they are upping security so much so hopefully everything will go smoothly and i'm just i'm excited i'm i'm like hopeful for the first time in a while i know and so i too also have some reservations about how the day is gonna play out I'm looking at the schedule of events they've definitely like pared it down yeah i think both for pandemic and also crazy reasons yeah um which is great because let's just keep joe safe yes um at all costs yeah (laughs) have you seen the videos going around of what dc looks like this week yeah it looks like they're getting ready for the purge yeah it's terrifying it is normally like the week of inaugurations it's like parties and like celebrations and parades and it's literally like barricades and the national guard and i like saw a video on tiktok of like people like showing shots of them boarding everything up and playing the purge siren in the background i was like no no it's so sad you know who i feel i mean i feel bad for joe biden because he's worked his entire career in politics he and and i'm not saying he's perfect he definitely was not my first choice candidate i'm not gonna go into all of that however but god is he better than what we have (laughs) but um i feel bad that he spent his whole life this is most likely the only inauguration he'll get. Yeah. I'm like, you don't even get to do it right. Like, there's not even inauguration balls for him and Jill. And I'm just like, it kind of sucks. I know. And it's like, and besides that, it's just sad to me that, like, in what should be a peaceful transition of power in our democracy, like, we're scared that there's going to be some kind of crazy insurrection or event like that that's sad to me yeah well of course and that there has been no peaceful transition of power yeah yeah i mean i i read an article this week about how like jill has still not been invited to the white house by melania to like get a tour and you know like do you like i know michelle didn't love melania and she still welcomed her into their home and Mm -hmm. gave her a tour and showed her the ropes jill is smart jill will figure it out yes however it's just just so disgusting like that this is going to always be the 45th president of the united states i know i know it's an embarrassment and i hope that he gets what's coming to him and gets penalized because 
if the if he gets away with all of this, like it just sets such a bad precedent, you know? Well, he was a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> anyways, so I any- feel like we've held back and haven't really had these political conversations, so I'm just letting it all out now. There's I been know. like some jibs and jabs here and there. So if you disagree with us, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> yeah, probably. But yeah. on to podcasty things. On to people getting caught <laughs> for <laughs> terrible actions. Uh, back in the 1920s or 30s. Yes. Actually, we're in the third. No, we're 20s, right on the 20s. Cusp. We're right on the cusp. Um, we're recording an episode that happens in the 30s, so I got. Yes. So last week we went into all of the details surrounding the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and like the play-by-play of how it happened and who died and everything. But it was so much information that we couldn't really go into who did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, And all the theories, because there's there's a lot of theories surrounding it. And I think there are two main ones that we're going to cover, but it's unsolved. So, <laughs> yeah, we today are going to look into the two biggest theories that historians and the public believe of who was in charge, who's who done the it? mastermind. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just really interesting. I like, I, part of me loves unsolved mysteries and murders, like, because it's interesting to hear these theories and like try and figure it out, but then it's also kind of unsatisfying because you don't actually know I know and like I just want to know I want to know the planning that went into it I want to know I hopefully I mean I I was gonna say I wish like he would have had like a deathbed confession and like admitted it but also his mind was deteriorating by the time he died so yeah but man I just want to know I know there's some things we're never gonna know and I think the who did it (laughs) For the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is one of those things. Yeah. Um, but you guys can listen today. Listen through both theories. Look at all the evidence. And let us know what you think. You can send us a message on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter. At a tap on the wrist. You can also shoot us an email. Um, I <laughs> When I said shoot us an email, I was thinking of the massacre. Oh, oh. Um, you can write us an email at uh. Oh my god, it was a young at heart book club. We have a book club, and I almost gave that email address. <laughs> you can email us at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail dot com. Uh, let us know what theories you agree with. Um, or you know, email us about anything cocktail, alcohol, history related. Definitely do. And now it's time. Yeah. Time to look at those theories. Let's go. Newspapers across the country devoted an unprecedented amount of space to coverage of the mass murder of seven men, and in the process sold millions of copies. The event impressed itself into the consciousness and the history of the nation like a dark fly in amber. Firing Squad Kills Seven in Big Gangland Massacre. Killing of Seven Laid to Capone Gang. Massacre. Seven and Moran Gang. Seven Chicago gangsters slain by firing squad of rivals, some in police uniform. 
Gangsters line up and murder seven men. Gangland killings had been happening for years in Chicago, and the general public had looked the other way. While the mob was technically, quote-unquote, bad, they were providing the illegal vices that so many people were participating in. So they kind of looked the other way and let them slide. Oh, yeah. However, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which, if you haven't listened to last week's episode... Definitely you need to turn around. Yep, yep. Pause right now <laughs> and go to last week. Because we're getting into the aftermath of that massacre, so you really should know what actually happened on that day. Yeah. But the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was so gruesome that seemingly overnight there was an uproar from the public to clean up Chicago. This crime had gone too far. And I kind of wonder... Was it, like, the media attention and the headlines that all of a sudden people were like, oh, no, Chicago's bad? Yeah. Or if people were actually, after, like, 10 years of all of these shootings and killings, kind of fed up with organized crime. Right. And it really was just like, okay, we do need to clean up because it really is terrible. Mm -hmm. And we'll never know the answer. No, because we didn't live back then. No. (laughs) Um, Jonathan Eag wrote about the massacre, and this is a quote, from coast to coast, people suddenly seemed to be reaching the conclusion that a line had been crossed, that the violence had become too much to bear. So, given the crime, there clearly had to be an investigation completed. They had to collect all the evidence and figure out who had committed such an egregious crime. So, the Cook County Coroner, Herman Bunsen showed up on February 14th, 1929 to the garage and collected the evidence from the crime scene on the day of the massacre. He had dozens of photographs taken and ordered a careful collection of all of the empty shells, bullets, and bullet fragments. The firearms evidence was placed into envelopes that were appropriately marked and sealed. Like it seems like they took quite a bit of care when collecting evidence from the scene to kind of make sure that someone would be caught. Right, which, like, I feel like back in the day, people weren't really known for being, like, like, people would swarm crime scenes and, like, the evidence would usually be contaminated and they weren't super careful about the collection of stuff, so. Well, that, and we've talked about this idea of it being taken care of locally. Right. So for the coroner to be like, yeah, this is probably a mob hit, but we still need to collect all the evidence is really interesting. Yeah. Um, Okay. I lost my my spot. Um, Okay. So after all the evidence was collected, um, Bunsen then named a coroner's jury, which was made up of local business leaders, to investigate the murders, which I guess that's kind of the same idea as like a grand jury today. Right. Um, they called it a coroner's jury. And the jury's first concern was to figure out whether police officers were actually inver- involved in the massacre um, because that's what the witnesses were saying. We the saw cops. cops. Yeah. And so it kind of, from what I had read, it caused a big issue in the Chicago Police Department mm-hmm. because a lot of the media headlines went with, like, cops committed killings, and they were like, the Chicago PD is so corrupt, of course they did, and it was, like, a very heated... It reminds me a little bit of what's happening today. Right. Of, like, people against cops and cops against people, and I'm sure there were protests and things all around this crime, but... Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, 
in order to figure out and sort through all the evidence, um, they needed to hire some experts. And so the coroner for Cook County hires Dr. Calvin Goddard. Um, and Goddard is a pioneer in ballistics uh, testing. He was from New York. Of course he was. <laughs> <laughs> and they asked him to come to Chicago. And so I'm just going to take a minute here and explain kind of how awesome Calvin Goddard is because I didn't know anything about him until I was researching yeah, I'd never this heard episode. Of him. And my murderino heart is obsessed. <laughs> um, so Goddard developed the science of identifying fired bullets and empty cartridge cases known as forensic ballistics. So he proved during like his earlier years uh, as like a young scientist that no two revolvers were ex made exactly alike and that every weapon left like characteristic marks on a bullet and a cartridge as it was fired. Um, and that every bullet that goes through a gun mm -hmm. will have the same exact markings on it. And, like, that is still, to this day, how cops identify, like, oh, weapons wow. and crime scenes is by bullet markings. They can tell if a bullet has been fired from a particular gun based on, like, the scratches uh -huh. or, like, the marks that it makes as it goes through the barrel of the gun. Interesting. And so, like, he invented it, and it is still, to this day, the same ballistics that are used to determine, like... If a, if a bullet was shot through a particular gun. That's awesome. Yeah. This guy is impressive. Yeah. Um, and so he showed that a bullet taken from the, a, the body of a murder victim can be identified as having been fired from a specific gun because the marks the gun has had left on test bullets. So basically, if they find, find a murder weapon mm -hmm. and run bullets through it, they can then match those bullets to bullets found in a murder victim. That's actually pretty fascinating. It's crazy to me that every single gun has like a different... It's like their fingerprint. Yeah. It's all unique. <laughs> um, so all true crime fans like Vanessa and I can thank Goddard for his science that lets us solve murders. Yes. And so when Goddard arrives in Chicago, he is presented with this massive collection of bullets and shell casings that were recovered from the garage crime scene and among it are 70 45 caliber cartridge shells and based on his knowledge of guns he knows that the 45 caliber shells have been fired from the thompson from thompson machine submachine guns and then further investigation he could determine that 50 of the cartridges have been all fired from one gun and 20 of them were fired from a separate gun. Oh, so that's probably... Well, never mind. Because I think last week when you were telling the story, you said one had a 50, 50 and one had a 20. And, yeah. like, he could... That's how they know that. Yeah. Is because of his evidence. Right. Um, so then the investigators know that there were at least two shooters involved. Right. Because of this. Um so according to the mob museum goddard then obtained samples of fired bullets from several thompson submachine guns that were owned by the chicago pd because the chicago oh, pd eliminate the police again yeah, yeah they were like we are not involved in this yeah and so they had to eliminate them right. so that's what he does they take all their guns they test the bullets and 
he compares them under the microscope with the slugs removed from the murder victims and comes to the determination that no police weapons had been used in the St. Valentine's Day massacre. So this now leads investigators to believe that since so many witnesses noticed police uniforms, they had to be used as some form of disguise. Right. Which goes back to like the whole story we told last week that they were used as a disguise. Mm -hmm. But this is all based on like Goddard's evidence, the entire story we told last week, because you know, we don't He's a rock star. We don't really know. <laughs> um and so while Goddard is investigating all the evidence, there's still detectives looking for the culprits. Mm -hmm. And there's a general outcry by the public. And a reward of $100,000 is offered. So the money is collected from different government institutions, business groups, and just general public. We're all contributing for a reward for who had committed this crime. Mm -hmm. uh, the local police were doing their best to investigate, but they kept reaching dead ends. Um, literally, in many cases, they would track someone down and they were dead. Which yeah. We'll, we'll get to. But also, um, they would arrest someone and there was airtight alibis. They just were not able to figure anything out. And they needed more help. Mm -hmm. So about a month after the massacre, a, a bunch of prominent Chicago businessmen actually went to D.C. and met with the brand new president, President Hoover. And they urged him to provide federal assistance to tackle not only this crime in Chicago, but all of the rampant organized crime in Chicago. Yeah. So Hoover agrees. He says, you know, Chicago is kind of, even though New York had its own organized crime, Chicago really was like the, the leader of organized crime during prohibition. And so Hoover decides, yes, let's get the FBI involved. Uh, involved, and he tells the attorney general um, to quote unquote get Capone. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that was his goal. He wanted to get Capone. I mean, it makes sense. Sorry, just jumping back to your other point that Chicago was more of a crimey town than New York because, like, a lot of these people that we're talking about you know, Torrio, Capone, like, they came from New York to Chicago. Right. So, I guess if you really wanted that gangster life, where you went. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I mean, I think, I think we there's so much focus on Chicago as well, is because that really was what the biggest thing happening in Chicago at the time was, whereas New York in the 1920s was also kind of like, the hub of invention and architecture. Yeah. New York had so much other stuff happening mm -hmm. during the 1920s that while we did have organized crime, it was not the biggest piece of our of the city. Right. Um, where Chicago was really run by the mob at mm -hmm. that time. Okay. So Hoover sends in the FBI, um, and we are going to talk a lot about that in in a future episode right but um it this goes all the way to the top yeah <laughs> as they say um so yes um but is capone our guy is that who we really want to get did he plan the massacre who pulled the trigger that killed the seven men that day and so today we're gonna try and tackle some of those questions and go over some of the biggest suspects and the theories 
um, to the seven person execution that is still unsolved and a crime that no one has ever served time for. Yep. Okay. So we're going to go over two main theories. The first is the Capone in the outfit. We're in charge of yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, what we've basically been alluding to. So we noted last week that Capone was nowhere near the garage on the morning of the massacre. Convenient. <laughs> in fact, he was nowhere near Chicago at all. Uh, Capone was in Miami on February 14th, 1929. And I don't think we've really talked about this much, but he did have a home in Florida. He did like Florida. It was like his vacation spot. Yeah. Um, so he, like I said, he was in Miami and therefore could not have been the one who actively pulled the trigger trigger. So while he is probably involved, he did not pull the actual trigger. We know that for a fact. Okay, so Capone's alibi is the Dade County Police Department. Um, as he was being questioned about his finances, that's when the massacre occurred. So, like, they're his backup. Yeah. That he couldn't have been there. The story is that he was sitting in the police department when news broke of the massacre. And he was like, oh, wow. <laughs> crazy. Um, and that does seem, like, super convenient that, like, that's when he was being questioned was at right. that moment. Like, that was not a planned alibi at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, while he has this airtight alibi, most historians and the general public believe that Capone was responsible for the hit and for the funding of the ultimate plan to take out Bugs Marone and the Northside Gang. Marone. Moran. <laughs> Why did I say it like that? You were feeling <laughs> Bugs Moran. Uh, so if Capone was in Miami, who did he have help him? Well, most believe that it was his trusted bodyguard and enforcer, Hottie with a body, mm -hmm. Jack McGurn. Of course it was. Of course. We've noted that that he's a He's a known killer. He, he got the job done most of the time. So Jack McGurn was never prosecuted in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Again, no one was. But the theory, the main theory is that he was the actual mastermind behind the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So if Capone was behind the massacre, it seems likely he would have had McGurn handle all the details because Capone didn't seem to, you know, get too involved in the, like the dirty details he was just like got an idea you take this on he was like that bugs moran guy i don't like him get rid of him and like jack came up with a plan right so now let's talk about our friend hottie with a body so machine gun jack mcgurn would have had many sufficient reasons to go after the members of the north side gang so i think we touched on this in the last episode but on march 7th of 1928 he was hit in the chest and arm by machine gun fire in the McCormick Hotel. His assailants were allegedly the Gusenberg brothers, Peter and Frank, um, who we've talked about. They were kind of like the hitmen of the Northside gang. Um, and less than a year later, they were two of the seven men that were killed in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So McGurn obviously survived that attempt and he survived another assassination attempt on April 27th of 1928 
when a car carrying four men opened fire with Tommy guns on McGurn's Lincoln. McGurn jumped out of the car and ran for cover. So the idea of McGurn plotting this revenge to hit the Northside gang and take out their top guys was like not out of the question because he was like pissed. They tried to kill him twice. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty deliberately too, like machine yeah. guns to his car. Yeah. Um, and he got hit. He got hit by the the bullets. So yeah. like, obviously he was fucking pissed. <laughs> um. So the biggest theory is that McGurn set up the massacre by tricking the Moran gang members into showing up at the Clark Street garage to take a delivery of Canadian whiskey hijacked from Capone. So we talked about that a little last week, that it's believed they were gathering there because of a shipment of whiskey. Um, Others, including Moran himself, disputed the storyline, of course, because it's illegal. Yeah. (laughs) So during the investigation, police found Machine Gun Jack, and when asked if he would answer some questions, he didn't seem worried. Uh, he reputedly said, me mixed up with the gang killing? <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, he chortled and then said, don't make me laugh. The Gusenberg boys would have plugged me if they saw me a block away. Which kind of makes sense. Like, they were known enemies. Right. So, if he walked into that garage, disguised as a policeman or not... Yeah. The Gusenberg brothers they would, would have like, known exactly who he was. They would be like, um, what the fuck? So, I, <laughs> I kind of agree on that point. And he's right. They would have probably shot him if they saw yeah. him. Yeah. So, I don't think he was one of the gunmen that day. No, for sure. Because, again, remember last week we said that... They all the men had guns on them, and not one of the men drew their guns. Right, if Machine Gun Jack had been there. There's no way in fuck they wouldn't have pulled their guns out. Yeah. Um. Okay. So the first arrest in the case came on February 27th of 1929. Uh, the police did charge McGurn in the massacre, but he was able to provide an alibi. He said he was in a hotel with his girlfriend Louise Rolf the entire day. Um which they dubbed the blonde alibi, which I think is real cute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cute for a massacre alibi. The blonde alibi. Well, like they never used her name. They were yeah. just like, it's not McGurn. He has a blonde alibi. Yeah. Um, and following his arrest, he immediately posted the $50,000 bail and was out on the street. He then married Louise, uh, and that meant that she didn't have to testify against him, yeah. which seems suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> so if McGurn didn't pull the actual trigger, even though he probably plotted it, who did? So on March 14th, the police announced several other suspects. Uh, they were Joseph Lordo, Fred Burke, and James Ray. All three suspects had vanished and could not be found. Convenient. (laughs) Uh, But they had ties to the American boys who were a crew out of St. Louis that worked for Al Capone. It was Capone who gave them the nickname, presumably because they weren't Italian. Like the American boys. (laughs) Okay. That's probably like just what he was like, oh, those, you know, those American boys that that we have working for us. Uh, So a few early clues implicated members of this group. So the quote-unquote leader of the American Boys was Fred Killer Burke. That's such a boring nickname. Killer. Let me guess. 
He killed people. <laughs> <laughs> so lame. <laughs> so Burke fled to his farm in Green City, Missouri in the days that followed the massacre. But the police wanted to talk to him because an eyewitness said one of the killers was wearing a police uniform and had a front tooth missing. And Fred Burke was known to have a missing front tooth. I mean, that's a pretty identifying feature. Yeah. <laughs> so while on the lamb, Burke posed as a prosperous businessman named Richard F. White. He married a 20-year-old nurse named Bonnie Porter, and they lived on her father's farm. But remember, at this point, news of the massacre had spread across the nation, um, as had the suspects that were involved. So Burke was a haunted man, and his picture had been in papers and magazines. A local Missouri man named Joe Hunsacker, I'm going to go with Hunsacker, <laughs> studied the newcomer and became convinced that he was Fred Burke. That man is a murderino. Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> armchair detective. <laughs> or was, rather, I guess. I'm sure he's not. Um, so he had seen the picture in True Detective magazine, because, again, he's a murderino. Uh, local police initially ignored his pleas to look, to look into Burke. Uh, until they discovered he may be tied to a police killing. So, of course, they were like, meh. And then it's like, oh, wait, he shot one of us? Yeah. So then they decide to get involved. Uh, turns out that on the evening of December 14th of 1929, Fred Killer Burke had smashed his car into another car. Uh, and when a cop came after him, Burke shot him dead. Police searched for Burke at his known address but couldn't locate him. However, they did discover a huge weapons collection, including two machine guns, seven revolvers, 11 tear gas canisters, and enough ammunition to take out a small country. <laughs> Chill. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's killer work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, ballistics tests done by Goddard in Chicago provided dramatic results. Burke's machine guns were the same ones used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Dun, dun, dun! Dun, dun. We have the murder weapons. Yep. One of the American boys had them. Okay. One of them had also been used in assassination of Frankie Yale in New York. Which we talked about was like the car chase, and then he was shot in, the, in his car. Yeah. So, like... We knew Capone put that hit out, so it kind of makes sense that that weapon was also. Yeah. Yep. Um, so when these connections were made, local police raided his home in the early morning of March 26th of 1931, uh, and Burke was extradited to Michigan from Missouri. There he was convicted of killing a police officer and sentenced to life in prison. He served nine years in Marquette State Prison before he died of a heart attack in 1940, uh, and he was strongly suspected of participating in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but he was never prosecuted for that. No, they, like, put Despite him on... the fact that he had the fucking guns. Yeah, they put him on trial for the killing of the police officer, and he got, like, life in prison, and so they were like, well... He's in prison anyway. Yeah. No need to worry about solving this other mass murder. Um, okay. So the other suspects from the American Boys include Bob Carey, Gus Winkler, Fred Goats. Yeah, I think so. And Raymond Nugent. 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 Uh, unfortunately, there wasn't enough evidence to arrest or charge any of them with the crime. So 
in November of 1931, Cook County Coroner Herman Butson. I think it has anything to do with the Butson burner. Probably not, right? No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, officially closed his inquest into the massacre case, concluding merely that seven men had been murdered by someone. <laughs> That's the official closing. Like, yes, these men have been murdered by someone. Like, are you kidding me? Oh, man. Uh, but this theory about the American boys doesn't end there. Years later, federal agents arrested a man named Brian Bolton, who surprised investigators by agreeing to share about who had really pulled the trigger during the massacre. Bolton said that the massacre was planned in late 1928 at a Wisconsin resort owned by Fred Goats, uh, with Al Capone in attendance. Because, of course. He said it was a direct plan to kill Bugs Moran, which is what most people think. Uh, and Bolton identified the killer as Fred Goats, the killers, uh, Gus Winkler and Fred Burke, uh, as well as Raymond Crane. <laughs> Nugent. What? I'm guessing he had a long neck. I, I left it in. On, like, bottles. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we didn't say when we wrote this episode, so Crane Neck was a surprise to me because I skimmed it earlier and did not process that. Uh, and also Bob Carey, who doesn't apparently have a nickname. Uh, a number of Chicago investigators believed that Bolton's story checked out, and it was later corroborated by two others, including Irene Goats, who was married to Fred, as well as Georgette Winkler, who was married to Gus Winkler. Georgette said that the four men who had entered the garage and murdered Bugs Moran gang were Fred Burke, Fred Goats, Gus Winkler, and Ray Nugent. Uh, she said that Burke and Goats wielded the Tommy guns in the massacre, so they were the plain-dressed people. Um, and the lookouts were said to be Moran and Bolton. Uh, oddly enough, once they received this news, most of the named men were already dead. So, like, great. But how did they <laughs> die? <laughs> uh, so, first we got Bob Carey, who was shot to death in 1932 in what authorities declared a murder-suicide. Next we got Gus Winkler, uh, who was murdered in 1933, allegedly on orders of the Chicago outfit, who suspected he was talking to the feds. They were like, no, sir. Uh, Fred Goats, who was murdered on the streets in Cicero, Illinois in 1934, which we've mentioned as a place that Capone did frequent. Uh, <laughs> Crane Neck, <laughs> who was last seen in 1930 with Al Capone in Florida, vanished. Hmm, weird. Uh, he's believed to have been murdered, of course. Uh, it's reasonable to assume that the murders of Winkler and Goats, and possibly Carrie and Nugent, were the result of the Chicago outfit not wanting to risk the massacre assailants talking. Uh, so none of them were ever brought to trial or served time for the massacre. As we've said it's many crazy. times. crazy. Still unsolved. Crazy that, like, they all just died within years of the, the massacre. massacre. Like, by 1934. I, as young. Like, they were young middle-aged men like we're not talking like 70 year old guys right they all mysteriously were murdered or killed yeah oh man uh however many people believe bolton made up this story 
because parts of it didn't really make sense. So at least one of the men he identified as the killer as one of the killers had an alibi. Uh, there were also questions of why Capone would hire so many men for a job that required only one assassin. Uh, Capone knew where Bugs Moran lived. Uh, he knew the headquarters of the North Side, and he was not afraid of putting a hit on an enemy. We've heard many times. We've even heard of him straight up just shooting someone himself. Uh, so he could have had Jack McGurn or another hired gun, like in a car across the street, you know, from Moran's house or from his most popular hangouts and, you know, just gotten him out with a clean shot. Sending in a hit squad was kind of out of character for Capone and Bugs wasn't even killed in it. So don't you think Capone may have tried again? Mm, so was it Capone in the outfit? Mm. I don't know. Let's imagine a completely different scenario now. Yeah. Uh, one that does not involve Al Capone. Wild. I know. So this theory com is completely unrelated, uncapone related. Um, okay. This theory involves William Davern Jr., uh, the son of a Chicago police sergeant who had been shot during a bar fight in November of 1928. Um, the story goes that Davern had been in the kitchen of the CNO restaurant, which is located at 509 North Clark Street. It was a known popular gangster hangout when a fight erupted. Davern was shot in the stomach, and instead of like being taken to a hospital and treated while he was like spurting blood, he was just dumped on a street corner and left for dead. Mm. However, he did not die. He managed to crawl to a fire station call box and ring for help. So he was taken to the hospital where he lived for almost a month. Oh, wow. Um, and during that time, he was questioned multiple times about who had shot him. And he refused to tell police who had shot him. Like, I just don't understand that. It was, like, so common back then. Like, that code of silence. Yeah. I'm sure still is in a lot yeah. of cases. However, towards the end of the month when he realized he actually was going to die, um, he did confide in his first cousin, a man by the name of William White. And he said to William that the shooters were members of the Moran gang, including one of the Goosenberg brothers. They just got around. Those yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So then William Dar Davern Jr. dies and William, three fingers white. Yes, on one hand, he only had three fingers, hence the nickname. Mm. I get wet. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, people. yeah. Made up his mind to avenge his cousin's murder. So in true mob fashion, White knew the Goosenbergs because, you know, a lot of the mob crew hung yeah. out. Even if they weren't in the same group, they knew of the bigger names like the Goosenbergs mm -hmm. and had done business with them previously. So Three Fingers contacts one of the Goosenberg brothers and said he was planning to hold up a factory for its payroll and needed men to help. Which kind of explains why the Northsiders showed up to the Clark Street garage dressed up that morning. Mm -hmm. um, You're right. Because they were going to go and rob this this factory. Right. Um, so, White, given his 
family background with law enforcement also kind of knew that when people saw police uniforms, they tended to be more trusting. So remember, the man who was shot and killed, um, William Davern, his dad was a Chicago police sergeant. Right. And, like, there were lots of cops within the family. So he's, like, kind of thinking, how can I plan and plot this murder mm -hmm. to get back for killing my cousin? And he comes up with the idea of dressing up as a cop because people tend to trust in cops. Mm -hmm. And he knew that. So, um, and then also it's noted that, like, when you see a cop, you tend to, to notice, like, the uniform and the badges and not distinct features of, like, a cop's face. Right. Um, so it kind of seemed like the perfect disguise and plan for this hit. Yeah. Um, and in this case white or three fingers white might have enlisted the help of his uncle sergeant william j davern of the chicago police department who was the father of william davern jr um to kind of get uniforms because all the witnesses thought they were real police officers and like there's just halloween costumes are not like they don't look real you right. know what i mean so like right. A costumed police uniform is not going to look gonna the look same real. as a legit. So it's yeah. probable that the people dressed as police officers were in legit Chicago PD uniforms. Makes sense. And so this tie-in. Especially like, because you got to think these gangsters dealt with the police all the time. So like they'd probably be able to identify a fake uniform. Right. So this theory plays out with a clearer motive than Capone's theory the revenge of a killing of a beloved family member, which also fits a little bit more of the, like, heinous brutality of the attack, right? Like, there was, yeah. like, way overkill. Yeah, it wasn't just, like, a, you know, like, one shot in the head. Right. It just, it feels yeah. more emotional than just a hit. Right. Um, and... Because wasn't it also noted that, like, they kept shooting even after they hit the floor? Well, all 70 dead. rounds. Yeah, yeah. Like, all 70 rounds, you don't need 70 rounds to take out seven people. Right. Um, it may even account for why the investigation of the crime went nowhere. Perhaps word had spread through the police department that the, the garage killing had been carried out in retaliation for the murder of a sergeant's kid. Right. You know, Sergeant Davern might have been, have even provided the uniforms and the police car that was noted to have been seen on Clark Street. Right. Um... So, Vanessa told us last week that an eyewitness believed that the driver of the car was missing a finger. Like, that was, like, one of the mm -hmm. things they had said about the person sitting. Right. And remember, three fingers, yeah. William, three fingers would kind of match that description. And they, when I read that fact, they, like, made it clear that they never followed up on that. Like, on the fact that some, a witness identified them as having a missing finger. They, like, were like, okay, cool, noted it, never followed up. So, it kind of goes with that idea that the Chicago PD might have tried to cover it up. Right. If it were so tied to a police officer. Yeah. Um, and then, it was, I, I think we talked about this last week, and I read it once or twice when I was doing research for this episode, but they say that Gusenberg's last words, remember, he's the one man that lived, yes. Frank Gusenberg. Right. 
and he refused to say who shot him, right. but then they say his last words were, cops did it. Right. There's, like, conflicting. In some cases, people say he said, no one shot me, and then others, people say. Right. And so that's why people have always said, oh, it was, you know, people dressed in police uniforms is what he meant, but maybe he actually meant... Maybe he recognized them. Like, maybe he actually was like, oh, shit, the police are in on this. Yeah. So, which theory seems more plausible to you? Man, you know, it's like, I've just always believed it was Capone. But this other theory is actually pretty plausible. I just find it so convenient that Capone happens to be in a completely different state and happened to be being interviewed by cops at the moment that the thing happened and that, you know, hottie with a body happened to have an alibi. Like, I don't, it just seems well, so convenient. And the gun evidence, that is like really what gets me is that yes. the guns were found with like a known Capone, Capone associate. associate. Yeah. And it's the same gun on the hit on Frankie Yale. Yeah. Which I... I think is known to have been Capone. Right. So I guess you could also say that, like, if the cops were involved, they could have planted the weapons. Right. But I don't know. There was so much corruption in Chicago. I, I don't think we'll ever know the truth. No, I don't. But I still believe it was Capone. Maybe it's a, I, maybe I it's a combo. Here. It could be, yeah. It could be. Did, do we know if Capone knew this guy? Three fingers? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, it seems like everyone knew every all the Chicago gangsters knew everyone, so yeah, maybe it's a combo. Maybe. Right? Whether Capone had anything to do with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre or not, one thing is clear. He was punished for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the FBI now had their teeth in Capone, and they were not backing down. But we're going to talk about that next week. Yes. <laughs> Although, I don't know, I'm going back and forth now. I'm, I, I still think it was Capone. I'm settling on that. Yeah, I mean, we know, because we mentioned, like, he doesn't go to jail for this crime. Yeah. But this is really the beginning of, of the end for him, because now the police are, like, on him. Right. Because they want to tie him to this. Right. So whether Well, he that's was, what I was going to say. Like, did they want to tie him to it because they wanted to cover it up? Maybe. <sighs> I don't know, man. He's got to be involved. (laughs) Okay. So just, we are done with that story for today, but we just wanted to throw in a little bit of like a nerd out moment. Uh, So Chicago business leaders on the coroner's jury were so impressed with Goddard's work on the case that a few years later, they decided to finance the establishment of a private crime laboratory in Chicago. So it was headed by Goddard, and it was located at Northwestern University. It was a private crime lab to keep it away from, like, the corruption of the PD. So, like, it wasn't tied to the police officers because, as we said, they were very corrupt back then. Uh, And it expanded beyond Goddard's expertise in firearms identification to include lie detection, document examination, toxicology, why can't I say that? Toxicological Toxicology examinations. Fingerprint identification and photographic evidence. The lab even experimented with scapolamine. Scopolamine. Scopolamine. Uh, 
which is a truth serum. So it's that like, it's like a drug basically, right? That just like makes you kind of babble. Uh, so Goddard's Chicago lab was the inspiration and the model for the FBI crime lab that was established two years later. Which I just think is so cool that like, I like want to read more about this guy. Totally. He also, I, cause I did, I read a little bit more about him, but he also, um, was involved in the, um, the Sacco and Vincetti like murder case in, okay. in Boston, like in yeah, the 1920s. Yeah. And like, he's the one that provided the forensic evidence or the ballistics evidence for that, proving that the gun they had on them was the one um, in that crime. Yeah. Which is like, I want to say it's the first crime that led to an electric chair death in America. Like those two men being right. convicted. So anyways, he, he like was kind of like this badass of forensics in the 1920s before that was even like a thing. Yeah. Murderino so, hard impressed right now. Yes. So I used a couple of sources um, and really it's just a few because the the three sources I used were pretty great. Yeah. And Vanessa found two of them in Sunday. <laughs> I just went with it. Um, I found them and like I started using them for my story last week and I was like, mm, I feel like these are actually going to be more helpful for Laura. So the first one um, was chicagomagazine.com or chicagomag.com and it is an article called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and Al Capone, which is actually an excerpt from the book Get Capone. Right. Um, and then I also used the Mob Museum, which was ridiculously helpful. Yeah. I they mean, had like a whole interactive like yeah, section. Their, their website yeah. is phenomenal. Um, and the museum is phenomenal, but their website is really good as well. Yeah. And then I found an article um, written by like a forensic scientist. Mm -hmm. um, it's edu, And the article I read was Murder on St. Valentine's Day. And he had a lot of like of the more science-y based things on there. Yeah. So, those are my sources. It's so interesting. It's just crazy that they, that there's like, because there are smaller theories as well, but like these two main theories, they both seem possible. They do. They seem totally possible. Like, part of me is like semi-convinced by the other theory, because it's true, Capone, this wasn't usually Capone style, yeah. but... But if Capone was in the mastermind and McGurn was the mastermind, maybe this is McGurn's style. That's true. And, like, we don't know that. Yeah. Like, because he usually just did what Capone told him to. But if Capone was just, like, free reign, just get these people killed, who knows what, what he would have planned. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. So I'm excited. Um, we are going to be talking about now, like, some of those other investigations that, like, yeah they get into our true is... crime hearts are excited yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so i guess we'll see you next week yeah cheers, cheers.